Bro, welcome to Adam for the Statues and Stories here on statuesandstories.com with Adam Levinson on WSQF 94.5. How are you, Adam? I am doing fantastic. How are you guys doing tonight? Great. Well, you know, I, uh, I only really feel super American. Unlike Michelle Obama, I only feel that way when you're on the air. <laughs> we are all Americans and we're all proud Americans. Yep. That's right. Absolutely. The goal tonight is to talk about, continue the conversation from last week about the founding fathers and mothers. We're going to get some mothers in tonight mm -hmm. on the time that they spent in Paris, the importance of Paris, and the relationship between the United States and France. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is the continuation of a discussion after the, the, the burning and the, the fire at, um, at Notre Dame. So that's why we decided to spend some time researching. And it, it's a lot of history that's going to come up. In fact, we were just talking before uh, we officially started with Ed about uh, Talleyrand, who was for many years. He was the, the, the brilliant French statistician, or uh, you know, the, the, the foreign minister that, that, that France had under various regimes. And, and I was going to ask you if, uh, if you happen to know the story about Talleyrand and Aaron Burr. No, that's uh, Talleyrand was like the uh, J. Edgar Hoover. He served many administrations. He was the French. Henry Kissinger, right. I might say. Yeah. But there's a, there's a nice story that I'm going to retell because I always try to bring in Alexander Hamilton. Cause I'm sure. Alexander Hamilton. So before we get into the founders, uh, since we were talking about Talleyrand, so we're a little bit off the subject, but uh, here you have this leading intellectual, as we say, French foreign minister who had his fingers as the puppet master controlling a lot of what's going on throughout yep. Europe because France was such an important, Paris was such an important mm -hmm. um, city and destination for, for diplomats and for uh, you know, for, for the different uh, bureaucracies and for the, the, the Game of Thrones, if you will, this is this is in Europe in the 1700s. Mm -hmm. So here's the question, and it's a very famous story that the, the folks who love Alexander Hamilton are, are proud to point out, and uh, so let me try to do it justice. So the quick story is that Talleyrand uh, came out of power, fell out of favor during some of the Napoleonic uh, period when Napoleon is in control, and then Talleyrand eventually goes back to Paris. So Talleyrand spends a little bit of time in the States, and you know, he's traveling around and that he gets to meet and know Alexander Hamilton because he's studying what Alexander Hamilton is doing with his okay. financial plans and Hamilton really got our, our house in order and and set the stage for American prosperity under Washington so he, he became very familiar with what Hamilton was doing and then he returns back to France and I think we mentioned last week that Burr spent a lot of time in France because Burr was escaping persecution and prosecution because he had killed the Burr and was the vice president at the time but that he sort of uh, traveled to France to get away from problems in America, and he spent a good amount of time in France, and we talked about last week, he actually had two children while Burr was in France. But Burr goes, and here's the point, Burr goes to meet with Talleyrand one day, and he goes to walk into Talleyrand's office, and uh, Talleyrand sends the message through his assistant or secretary that, uh, Mr. Burr, you've come to see me, but I want you to understand that uh, I have a portrait of Alexander Hamilton, and I wish I had written it down with me, but the hanging over my door, are you still, or over my desk, are you still sure you want to meet with me? Oh. So, then Talleyrand, apparently, Burr does go in to see Talleyrand, and Talleyrand describes to, to Burr that the three, in his opinion, the three most important figures of our age, the most important, and this is at a time when Napoleon is the leader of France. Mm -hmm. So, so Talleyrand describes to Burr that the three most important figures of our epoch, and he mentions Hamilton at the top of that list. So that to give you wow. some idea of what yep. Talleyrand thought of Hamilton. Sure. Well, Hamilton undoubtedly laid the foundations for a sound federal government uh, credit and uh, a sound U.S. dollar, which later allowed Thomas Jefferson to buy the Louisiana Purchase. 
and maybe we'll have time to talk about that today. And Manny, what is your your favorite musical these days? Oh, uh, it's it's still Hamilton. Uh. <laughs> so unfortunately, Hamilton never made it to Paris. But tonight we're going to be talking about those founding fathers and mothers who did make it to Paris. I also, towards the end of the hour this weekend, and I apologize, I was very busy this weekend. I was in St. Pete. This is the Clearwater, Tampa area, because there was a meeting of the the Antiquarian Book Society that meets once a year. It's the largest book fair of antiquarian book dealers and ephemera. And ask me later what is ephemera. So if you have time, no, I ask you now. What's that? <laughs> Okay, so, as you know, because we did a Hamilton exhibition, I am a collector of old books, and these are old legal treatises and the old maps. I don't collect any of the maps, but I, I love looking into the primary sources, and that's a good way to mention Statutes and Stories, the website, that we use these original primary sources and books and maps and whatever we can find that can illustrate history to tell the story of history, teaching it through laws, diaries, letters between founding fathers, Washington to Jefferson and Madison, etc. So that's the purpose of the website. But the, the point is that there is a book deal, a book fair, and these aren't just used books. These are antiquarian books, so older books. So I mentioned to you ephemera. So you'll have people who are dealers not just in the old books, but also ephemera. So what is ephemera? And the quick answer, ephemera are advertisements or things that were not intended to be kept that people save anyway. So for example, here's a fantastic way of describing it. The Declaration of Independence is a political document. But when the Declaration of Independence was printed in a newspaper, you know, the first page of the newspaper was the Declaration, but the, the second page of the newspaper would have been newspaper articles and advertisements. So, because it was intended to be thrown away, that's ephemera. So, wow! Political, cool. You know, for, they, for the they use that for toilet paper. All about uh, you know American history and the Republican conventions, for example. So people collect, and you may collect it also. The in a well, hundred years from now, you know, the uh, maybe even sooner. But uh, you know. Political buttons and political pins. And oh, all I got a I like right, right, Ike right, yes. button at home, and I also have Nixon for president at home. I have a T-shirt that says Bush Reagan or Reagan Bush 1984. I told my son that was the last time the Republicans had run a conservative for president. It's just, that's exactly <laughs> and he, he right. He gave it to me. And you know, Bush vice president wasn't very conservative, but right. anyway, Reagan was okay. At least Reagan was. Back to Adam. So we're going to start 1776 as the Declaration of Independence. And uh, what the Continental Congress decides to do smartly is to send Franklin, uh, eventually to send Adams, and the first person that gets to Paris is uh, Silius Dean. And I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing his name, name correctly, but it's S-I-L-A-S, Silius Dean. And uh, his job was to try to negotiate arms and supplies from the French and to get loans, and that's why they send you know, some of the most important and the most well-recognized Americans who might have some experience trying to do diplomacy with the French, who if we can get the French to ally with the United States, and I'll give you statistics well, later on what, how French support proved critical. What the, year was the, that, though? What year? That's key. So the, the year is 1776. Silius Dean is the first American to right. get to France. Yep. And then later, there are issues that come up we don't have to go into tonight, but he gets sent back, he gets repealed, and Adams is sent as his replacement. Yep. So you have Dean in, in, in Paris, you have... Uh, you have Adams comes, and Franklin was there, and then you also have Arthur Lee. And by the way, they're smart, because when the Continental Congress sent a delegation, they sent a delegation with northern representatives, with uh, central states. For example, Benjamin Franklin is from Pennsylvania, which is you know, the middle state area. And then you, you, they usually also try to send a representative from one of the southern states, so they get geographic representation among their commissioners or among their delegates when you're trying to get support from, from a big, big ally, and that would be France. So... 
what's the point? The point is I want to describe to you, in order to get from Boston, for example, all the way to Paris, it is not an easy trip. And remember that the British are trying to embargo our coast. They've got British ships which are trying to intercept French ships or any other ships that are trying to supply the Americans. So every night when we do the show, I always like to refer to some of the books that I've been referring to. And uh, here I'm going to refer to a book called A Great Improvisation by Stacey Schiff, and she won a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer Prize for it. Also the book John Quincy Adams by Paul Nagel. So I'm going to read to you about what they anticipated and what happened on that trip from John Adams, and he brings with him, he brings with him his son, John Quincy, so J.Q. Adams. And then and Benny, I'm sorry, uh, Manny, what, what happens to John Quincy Adams? He learns to speak a bunch of languages, and what happens in about uh, 30 years later? Uh, wh why is John Quincy Adams an important name? So well, he becomes Adams. president of the United States. That's right. So John Quincy, imagine the on-the-job training when you get. And remember, he also made uh, he also garnered in the uh, Abstand Manifesto, which offered. What was that about? Uh, purchasing Cuba for 150 million, and told the king, "If you don't sell it to us, we'll take it." And, fi and 50 years <laughs> made later, an offer you couldn't repeat. Yeah, well, 50 so years later, up on it. 50, no, 50 years later, we took Cuba. 98. Yeah. Well, this was uh, 40. Uh, okay. 1848. Okay, go ahead. So the date is February 13th, 1778, and you have John Quincy, the son. He's about 11 or 12 years old. He's getting on a boat to, to, to travel, to sail to Paris. And uh, the quick observation is the name of the boat, which the frigate was the Boston. And uh, you don't want to advertise the fact that you've got important American delegates who are going to be leaving because there are British spies everywhere. So they leave without any fanfare, and uh, here's the quick observation that they, they leave. They lived in Quincy, Massachusetts. They leave from Boston, and I'm going to describe, and they, these guys would do very detailed letters and diaries. So I'm going to read to you from the diary describing what this ocean voyage. And if they're lucky, it might take four to five weeks. If you get bad weather, it could take six weeks or longer. They were unlucky. So here you go. This is the journal talking about their trip to Paris. <laughs> to describe the oceans, this is a quote, the waves, the winds, the ship, her motion rolling, ringing in agonies, sailors, their countenance, language, and behavior is impossible. Lightning struck three men on deck, killing one, while the wind carried away the Boston, which is the name of the ship's main topmast. John Adams called the scene a universal wreck of everything in all parts of the ship, chests, casks, bottles, etc. No place or person was dry. So it was not a fun trip, but they were lucky they didn't get intercepted. And I'll also point out to you that had they been captured by the British, they could have been hung as traitors. So to bring your son with you, that's an interesting question. If I were, were John Adams, would I have wanted to bring John Quincy? And presumably, if the British caught them, they probably wouldn't have killed the child, and they probably would have held Ben as, I'm sorry, not Ben, but uh, John Adams as a hostage. But uh, you know, these are the risks you take when you're trying to be patriotic and help your country. Well... So they, elite, they, they arrive, and remember, Paris is not on the, the seacoast. So you, just because you get to France doesn't mean you're in Paris yet. So the Boston reach, reaches the coast of France. This is April 1st, 1778. So they leave in February 13th, 1778. They reach the coast of France, France April 1st, 1778. And they land in Bordeaux, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yes. And now they're in for a shock, because once they get to Paris, and we talked about this last week. They are, you know, conventional conservative Massachusetts Puritans, or, or uh, they probably weren't Puritans, but they, they were Massachusetts. Uh, uh, yeah, evangelical Christians. Yeah. But you know, they were they were Protestants. So right. I think that's an accurate way to describe it. They yep. were, you know, sort of conservative small town Protestants right. compared to what they're going to see in Paris. So one of the things that 
John Adams has to do is he has to enroll his son in school because they're going to be there for a while. Who knows how long the war is going to last? And later on in the hour, we'll talk about the positive development in 1778. That's a very important battle we'll talk about. So John has to enroll his son in school. So imagine what the classes are, which is maybe the question I'm going to be asking you. What do you think the classes are that, that this young John Quincy is going to take? And I'm going to read you from John Quincy's little diary. So he describes the school was run by, it doesn't matter the name, uh, but the, there it turns out there are a couple other Americans who are going to be in this school, one of which was Benjamin Benny, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, B-A-C-H-E, so maybe that's pronounced Bache or Bach. Mm-hmm. So this is the grandson of Franklin. He's also going to be in the school where John Quincy's going. So uh, in addition to learning Latin and French, the school provided training in fencing, dancing, drawing, music, subjects some New Englanders might have considered frivolous at best. So in one of the letters from Paris, I'm going to refer now to John Quincy Adams as Johnny. Johnny describes the school schedule as follows. Classes begin. What time do you think the classes begin? You're an American student. You're in Paris. This is a pretty serious school where you're going. Imagine, take, take a wild guess, and I'm going to tell you it's early. What time do you think the classes start? Eight. Six a.m. Oh, wow. As they should today. They then proceed for two hours, followed by a 60-minute break for play and breakfast. Studies then resumed until noon, when another interval allowed for dinner. So they were eating their dinner relatively early in the day and for more recreation. Then it was back to class from 2 to 4.30, more play for half an hour. And finally, classes from 5 to 7.30 when the students stopped. Afterward, there were games until it was time to retire at 9. So this is the education that John Quincy Adams is going to get in Paris. And uh, then he has additional learning when he gets home with his father, uh, you know, who's a Harvard graduate and uh, is all about learning and education. So that's a little bit of the background of John Quincy Adams, who later becomes the, I think, in fact, I know the sixth president of the United States. All right, so what about Mrs. Adams? So what winds up happening is that, as it turns out, the good news was that when John Quincy Adams arrives, uh, Franklin has already succeeded in getting a peace treaty with with the French, with with, with the uh, Talleyrand or whoever the minister was at the time, and with with King Louis the Sixteenth. So let me pause a little bit to talk about Benjamin Franklin. So we talked about last month. Benjamin Franklin was the most famous American probably in the whole world at the time. And when John Quincy Adams arrives, and John Adams arrives, uh, John feels a little bit overshadowed by Franklin because you know, Franklin is very at ease in French society, and uh, some of the French who had no idea who John Adams was would mistake him for his cousin, who is more well-known. So who is John Adams' cousin, uh, who's famous from Boston? Samuel Adams. The beer. Samuel, yeah. The beer, right. So Sam Adams. So John Adams was mistaken often for Sam Adams. So he feels a little bit underappreciated and a little bit out of his element. And I'm going to give you a quote now from John Adams in his diary talking about what it was like to be working with Franklin. So here you go. These incessant dinners and disputations were not the objects of my mission to France. So basically Adams is complaining that he has to spend all these times at parties yep. with the Franklin. You know, he's here to do business, but you know, Adams doesn't realize that what, what Yeah, that's Franklin part of the business. Like. He's hobnobbing with the important French aristocracy and, and the society folks. And uh, this was not something that John Adams was accustomed to. So Franklin mingles in this atmosphere of high society. He tells jokes. He's got you know harmless sort of a personality. He's flirting with women. And eventually John Adams will later come back uh, but, uh, because they achieved what they needed to do, which was the, the Treaty of 1778. This is an alliance that we make with France. So 
Um, here's an important update about what happens with John Adams. So John Adams eventually leaves to go back home to the United States, but uh, during his stay, when he gets back to America, he learns that he's been appointed by the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention to draft the state constitution. So this is going to be the first constitution in the states, because this is 1778, time frame 1779. And importantly, the constitution that Adams drafts becomes the, the model of the framework for the U.S. Constitution and also for a lot of other states. So it was a good thing that Adams goes back home, because you know, the work was done because Franklin had succeeded in, in negotiating the, the treaty, which gave us the alliance with France, and a, a couple treaties, actually two treaties that were negotiated. And Adams uh, does what he needs to do in Massachusetts, and then he will return in 1783 for the Treaty of Paris. And I'm going to read to you at some point, there are letters, and, and here I want to talk about what it's like to be separated from your wife for years. So between 1762 and 1801, John Adams is separated from... And here, let me ask the question, who is John Adams' famous wife? Abigail. Abigail Adams. So he separated basically for half of their marriage. They spend apart. Either he's in Boston working with the Constitutional Convention or he's working with the, you know, the Constitution. You mean he was in Philadelphia because she was in Boston? Well, they, right. but they did keep uh, letters. Letters, yeah. Yeah, sure. So, perfect. So over 1,100 letters were written between the, the two spouses, Abigail and John, between 1762 and 1801. And again, half of the time they spend apart. He becomes the minister to England. He becomes the minister to the Netherlands. <clears throat> and of course, it's after the war that he becomes the minister to London, to England. So I'm going to read a little bit to you about some of the letters, and it's, it's a fascinating study. There are lots of good books that have been written using these firsthand sources, which is what we like to use on statutesandstories.com, of Abigail writing to John, and she's trying to make sure that he doesn't wander, if you will, when he's in Paris because of all the temptations, and Adam's writing back to her. So let me read a little bit about uh, you know what, what that might have felt like for, for Abigail. So keep in mind that these transatlantic crossings were infrequent. Ships were lost. They were taken as prizes. Mail packets would be thrown over the side of the boat if they thought they might be confiscated. So whenever she would see a ship arrive from Europe, you know, she would race to Boston Harbor. This is Abigail. She would hurry into town. She would uh, haunt the wharves, seeking passengers and crew, trying to find out how her son and her husband is and where they are. So months could pass before she even knew whether or not he was still alive. So that was the, you know, the difficulty of being separated in time of war. And then in 1783 time frame, finally John sends for her. So she's 40 years old. Her two youngest children were not old enough initially to go with, with John Adams. So initially it was only John Quincy that goes with John. But then she later leaves to go to Paris with her 19-year-old daughter, Nabby. And uh, so she has to know, well, what's it going to be like for Abigail Adams to get a boat to bring her to Paris? So I'm going to describe, based upon her diary, what the traveling and what was required in order for her to prepare for a trip to leave, pick up all your bags, and leave to, to go to Paris. So uh, what kind of planning do you think it involves? And I'm going to ask you, maybe if you want to just speculate with me before I read from her diary, what do you think she has to do to prepare for a trip to go to Paris, having never been there before, and she doesn't even speak the language? Well, I mean... And other than learning some French, get her U.S. passport updated. <laughs> um, you know, other than that, is worry about um, uh, food or water. I don't know. Perfect, excellent, Manny. That's excellent. So, if you get a, a boat that's going to bring you, passengers needed to supply their own food. Oh what my God. Mean? These ships can, the, the trip can take five weeks, six weeks or longer, depending upon the weather. So she is supplying chickens. Cause yeah, I mean, I had to assume eggs. that you had to have your own child. Because no, it wasn't a cruise ship, for Christ's sake. Oh, come on. 
It was a sailing <laughs> ship and... So you could put a cow on the boat because that way you can get fresh milk and then you can kill the chickens and, and serve them up later. Uh, barrels of beer and ale. And why do you want beer and ale on the boat? For several reasons, because it's not going to go bad. right? You have to have fresh water. Hopefully it's going to last and wine. Barrels of flour, cornmeal, salted meats, preserves, sugar and lard. Also, she brought gallons of vinegar. So let me ask you this question. The vinegar isn't for cooking. What do you think? Abigail Adams is very conservative. She wants everything to be spick and span. What's the purpose of the vinegar? Cleaning. Cleaning. So she's bringing her own cleaning supplies with her. Soap, candles, have to bring your so own. So Abigail it's, Adams, uh, it's a real pain in the ass to bring your wife anywhere, just like it is today. So right? Entertainment. What are you going to do on the boat for six weeks? And the Me? answer is you bring your own entertainment. So knitting, sewing supplies, <coughs> cards, candles. Let's talk about sanitation on the boat. So she brought with her her daughter. She also brought, they hired a family to be their assistants, so their personal assistants. Uh, Jefferson brought slaves, but the Adams would hire a family to come with them and also take care of the kids to help out with uh, different chores. Uh, am I to assume that Jefferson uh, brought female slaves? So he brought So he can get some action? He also brought Sally Hemings' brother. I think his name is James Hemings. Who became a chef. He was trained to become a chef, and he chose to come back to America. So Jefferson comes in 1785, and Adams, this is now 1783, when Abigail is coming out to meet her husband. So let me just throw out to you, you have the vinegar to try to clean your quarters, and uh, according to some of the diaries, uh, it's just describing how Abigail was all, all about the criteria for cleanliness, and thus uh, she used she and Nabby and their servants would spend hours cleaning and scouring every inch of the vessel to make the conditions more acceptable. So if you were some of the sailors, this is great because someone's actually cleaning the boat with vinegar. Not to mention the, the, wow. wi the wife of the Secretary of State. More, more cleanliness than those sailors had seen in a long time. <laughs> I wonder if, Ab if Abigail had a little bit of, you know, for those sailors. No. That's a long trip, man. Well, anyway. By the way, by, by, I mean, uh, I mean Adam, sooner or later, old, you got to have a diary about romance. <laughs> he was 40 this, years old, forget 40? Yeah. That's like really old. Yeah, really. Yeah, 40's like 80 today. So what about the facilities? So I'll ask this question, and we'll try not to be too crude, but how do you think if you have to go to the bathroom, it works on a ship that's going from... You go to the head. I'm sorry? You yeah, go you go to the head. That's what it's called. But so what are you yeah, implying? There was a commode right there? Uh... For the women, and I don't know exactly how the details oh would work, God. but it was very common to use a wooden bucket. Yeah. You could pass around, from, especially at night, pass around from person to person, and then uh, at the end of the day, tie it to a rope. They would have it like, get cleaned out by the ocean and then yep. bring it back on board. That's the way to do it. Best way to clean it out, throw it in the ocean and pull it back. That's why she had all the vinegar, and that would also hopefully fight disease. I don't sure. know if you understood it. But, so that's what it was like. And Salt water is good disinfectant. The perfect disinfectant. All right, so Abigail arrives in France with her daughter, with the two hired staff that are going to help them. So, you know, she was familiar with Boston, but Boston was a city of, you know, compared to Paris, tiny, 15,000 people Alexander. in Boston. But Paris is a city of palaces and gardens and opera and magnificent buildings and avenues. But there were also a lot of poor people and a lot of beggars in Paris, so she'd never seen anything like that from the standpoint of, of the begging. Um, Man, that's not much different than today. Right, no, no, Europe okay, is still, yeah. because Europe is still begging. No, 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 no. It's it's the different problem there. All right, continue. So this is interesting. So I was trying to identify last week what Americans had seen Notre Dame or Notre Dame in the 1780s, 1790s. You know, who would be privileged enough or have the opportunity to go to Paris? 
And surprisingly, there's a good number of people who are studying in Paris. So Benjamin Waterhouse, and I did not recognize the name, but that he will wind up meeting with the Adams and with Franklin. So who is Benjamin Waterhouse? And as it turns out, he was studying medicine. And uh, he then later goes back to Boston and uh, in the 1780s time frame winds up founding Harvard Medical Schools. He was one of the three founders of Harvard Medical School. So Benjamin Waterhouse, and let me throw out to you, founded Harvard Medical School with John Warren. And this is how these families are so connected. Who do you think, and it's a tough question, who do you think John Warren is? And I'm throwing out to you that this is a... Not the Warren that's in the Supreme Court, is it? No, no, I think there's a brother of uh, the guy who was killed at Bunker Hill. Bingo. But, man, you're right. There is a Warren. Who There's was, a Warren, a Supreme Court justice, but that's many years that's later. different, yeah. And so he was the worst damn justice ever. Yeah. All right. I'm going to have to look into whether or not there was a relationship to the Supreme Court chief justice. I wonder. I wonder. That was cool. Uh, Earl Warren. Earl Warren. But John Warren, this is in the 1780s, 1790s, who found, co-found Harvard Medical School, was the younger brother of, of the Warren who was killed, the hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh, and I want to know, how, Ed, how did you know that? Manning. Say that again. Were you at, at Bunker Hill or no? Yeah, I'm you an fought old a bunker. You an you, old you fought a bunker. No, but how'd you know that? Did you do cheat notes or cliff notes before Adam no, called or what? No, I just you know. Sometimes he blows me away, and I don't know if he's cheating or or what. Just to keep track of the names. Go Dr. ahead, Dr. Joseph Warren. So if you go to statutesandstories.com, I have a blog about the Suffolk Resolves. And we may have talked about a little bit of the suffix resolves, but uh, remember there were five acts that were passed, so we're now going back to the 17th. Was it that on exhibit over at uh, NOLA or no? No, no, no. No, you didn't have any copies of that? Okay, go ahead. So in the, we did not have the suffix resolves, but the suffix resolves grew out of, so this is a little bit of an excursion or an aside, grew out of the Massachusetts Government Act in 1774. The British were retaliating for the Boston Tea Party, and they're putting the thumb down to try to suppress Massachusetts and Boston, and they pass all these laws, the Coercive Act and the Quartering Act, so they're trying to send the message to the colonies, don't do what Boston did. And uh, what's my point? My point is that because they couldn't hold under the Massachusetts Government Act, which revoked the charter or took away self-government for Massachusetts to punish Massachusetts for the Boston Tea Party. Um, so if you can't hold a meeting in the city of Boston, what do you do? And the answer is they hold a meeting in Suffolk County, which is the county. So it's not a city commission meeting, it's mm-hmm. a county meeting. So that was the result. Suffolk County is the county where Boston is saying that we support, uh, you know, uh, rallying together and uh, trying to stand up for But I, uh, for the audience to know, what was it? I mean, what was the difference? I mean, it wasn't a, a quorum issue. It was just a location issue or... Or why? Why the change of venue? I don't understand. This makes the point about in politics, be careful what you ask for. And I think in general, be careful of unintended consequences. So Parliament passes a law that takes away the state of Massachusetts or the colony of Massachusetts' right to have self-government, prevents meetings of in cities of, of legislative assemblies, but says nothing about countywide meetings. So what did the Patriots, the Sons of Liberties, do? If they couldn't meet in Boston, they hold a meeting in Suffolk County. Oh, okay. So it was a, it was a first, uh, yeah, uh, and, a first demonstration yeah, of, of rebellion. Suffolk Law School is is a law school today in Boston. Suffolk's law school. Suffolk. Suffolk, like yeah. in Suffolk County. Yeah. Okay. Suffolk County. And it had the unintended effects. So again, go to statutes and stories, read all about the Suffolk's resolve. And there's a museum now. It's the location. I think it may have been the meeting hall or the courthouse, and sometimes the buildings did many purposes, where people from all over the county came to meet to decide what they wanted to do to fight the British. And again, that's the Suffolk's resolve, which is written by Dr. Joseph Warren, who was killed at the Battle of Bunker Hill, but his younger brother 
also was a doctor and was one of the founders of Harvard Medical School. And, and the point is that all these Massachusetts families, especially those that are at the, you know, the who's who, if you will, of Massachusetts government, all knew each other. So they would all have known John Quincy as the son and John Adams and Abigail Adams. But my point was that Benjamin Waterhouse traveled to Paris and got to see uh, Notre Dame, which is where we started the conversation last week. So you know, who else is in Paris? Uh, and the quick answer is most important. Franklin. I'm sorry? Franklin was in Paris as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about Benjamin Franklin. So who does Franklin bring with him? So he brings his two grandchildren. He brings William Temple Franklin. He also brings, and I'm horrible pronouncing some of these names, but Benjamin Franklin Bache, which is spelled B-A-C-H-E. So maybe it's Bach or Bache. No, no, I'll tell you. Because of the mother. It's Bake, because there was a Wall Street firm in the early 80s, Bake Halsey Stewart, uh, that uh, was very prominent, and uh, Mr. Stewart was a University of Chicago alumnus, and he gave a lot of money for the uh, business school building. But Bache, B-A-C-H-E, was a prominent uh, name in uh, American financial industry. B-A-C-H-E, Bache. I stand corrected, so that's the pronunciation. Bache, Adam, you see, you see what a shameless plug for University of Chicago? Well, no, because Mr. Stewart donated uh, a big you chunk are... of money, so I, I learned about them then. Why isn't that contribution coming to WSQF Blink well, Radio? He, that was You're always plugging University of Chicago. Around, no, that was in 1980. <laughs> And Obama but, went to school there on top of that. No, he, he didn't go prom- to school there. He was like a you professor. Know, affirmative action uh, a professor. lecturer. <laughs> lecturer, not a professor. But but no, Bache was a prom is a prominent name in uh, in Wall Street uh, until the eighties. Now there's been a lot of consolidation in Wall Street, unfortunately, but that's a that's a continue, well, Adam. He's name. going down a rabbit hole. I can yeah, see absolutely. It. Oh, you're down the rabbit. Well, we're talking about names. Franklin Templeton. Yeah. is uh, you know a big mutual fund family in Absol- Fort Lauderdale. I, that's right. Gee, oh. I never heard that Good name fun, associated yeah. with Fort Lauderdale. That has always been the home of theirs. Yeah, asset wealth management. Yep, yep, yep. That's a, a wealth asset management. Well, I could tell. Ma- I man- could, you know, manage mentor, management mentor. He, he looks the part. Look at him. Captain but Cash. I want to say that the firm, the financial firm of Franklin Templeton. They Faita in the house, Faya in the house. Busted. No relationship, but they chose the name because it would look good and people would recognize the name. Okay. Well, that becomes this becomes a, a, a yeah, podcast. Pe- people pick prominent names, even if they're not uh, related to the company, just as a prominent name, like Columbus Life Insurance, or you know, Christopher Columbus. Oh, the Knights of Columbus. Knights of, yeah, well, right. That's What's up? Uh, yeah. Okay. You know, uh, Adam, this is all good, but I got to tell you, all this was made possible by the Battle of Saratoga in 1778. You know what? That's a perfect lead-in. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Franklin, and then we're going to talk about how the Battle of Saratoga was a game-changer. And it's just a perfect lead-in to what I'm going to describe. But who comes with Franklin? So Franklin comes in 1776. He leaves in October of 1776, and he brings his two grandsons with him. And yeah, we talked about how he puts them in the school. So on, I'll give you the date, December 4th, 1777. And Franklin would have meetings at the location where he's staying, where he would invite all Americans, and they would have dinner together, and they would uh, try to catch up on the news and see what's going on. And things were not going well, because they understood that Philadelphia was probably going to get taken by the British. And this part of the war is not going very well. So it's December 4th, 1777, and an American comes racing up down the road uh, to deliver a message. A young Bostonian wrapped in a travel-worn fur coat arrives to deliver an urgent dispatch entrusted to him by Congress. So Congress sends his messenger. And Franklin yells out, is Philadelphia taken? Yes, sir, was the reply, but I have later news than that. Sir General Boygan, and I'm 
Burgoyne. 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 So General Burgoyne, who is the British, uh, the British general, has been defeated at Saratoga. Yep. With his whole army has surrendered. So yep. what does Franklin do once he receives this news? He's having this dinner meeting with a bunch of the Americans who are in Paris, including. Uh, would have been 1777, including Adams hasn't arrived yet, but there would have been Lee, and Silly's Dean had probably already left with the Americans who were in Paris. So what does he do? Franklin's eyes beam, his bighorn spectacles, he cries out to his butler, champagne for Mr. Austin, who brings his glorious news. So what does Franklin do? Because this is important information. They thought they were going to lose Philadelphia, which they did. But now there's an important victory. So Franklin immediately wants to apprise the court in Versailles, let the king know the yep. news of an American victory. And Franklin, in a way, is a perfect person to do it, because what was one of his jobs when he lived in America? He was a scientist, he was an inventor, he was a writer. Publisher. What was one of his first jobs? Publisher. Publisher. He knows newsprint. He knows how to write stories. So what does Franklin do? He... Uh, too bad he didn't have a printing press with him at the house where he was staying, at the estate where he was living. But he decided, of course, he has to immediately notify the king and notify the French advisors to try to get them to recognize American independence. So smartly, he prepares an invitation so that they can invite him, an announcement, so maybe they can invite him over to meet with the king. And he wants to propagate the, not just the American victory, but he wants the French to understand that there were French officers who were courageous, who were part of this process, and he wants to advertise how French were participating. And a lot of Americans and a lot of people in general did not know that the French were providing military assistance. And the French were doing it sort of behind the scenes because they didn't want to attract the attention of the British because the French were not yet prepared to enter into a war with Britain, but they wanted to provide military aid, which they did behind the scenes secretly. In fact, I think it in other evening, we talked about the name of the company, and a lot of this was coming through New Orleans and coming through Spanish and coming through other countries. It wasn't just coming from France. But the, the name of the company, by the way, that a lot of the aid prior to the uh, decision of France to enter into the war came from a company, Hortales and Company. So you had these fictitious businesses that were created to provide supplies. And that was all because Louis the 14th, and I'm sorry, Louis the 16th was willing to provide assistance. So here, Franklin receives this wonderful news that, that there was this big victory at the Battle of Saratoga, and he has to describe what's going on. So what he decides to do is to make sure and remind the French court that Americans in general had no inkling of the king's generosity, given the secrecy of the French aid. So he wants to let them know, you've already provided assistance. You know, a lot of this is because of French assistance and French support. And let me give you some statistics. There are some historians that have estimated that at the Battle of Saratoga, nine out of ten American soldiers carried French arms, French guns, and virtually all had French gunpowder. So without the French assistance at Saratoga, things may have been very different. And remember who some of the French officers were who were volunteering. Lafayette is an example of a Frenchman who traveled to America to fight the hated British who had beaten the French in the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War. It goes by both of those names. Mm -hmm. So here's a great quote about how excited France was and how excited Benjamin Franklin was. Uh, so this is one of the newspapers is describing how only the man who had discovered electricity can electrify both halves of the world, and now he has the perfect opportunity to sell the French. You need to now join the war, and we need you as our official ally rather than our secret uh, surreptitious ally who is supplying us. We need French troops, and we need official French support. So March 20th of 1778, Franklin does get announced, and you know, the, the treaty gets signed, the Treaty of Alliance, which is uh, one of the first American treaties with a foreign country. When I say American, this is the... Continental the, Congress, Yeah, right? the colonials. The 13 colonial states. So uh, Franklin eventually gets to go meet with, and I don't know who else traveled with him, presumably all of 
that delegation travels to meet with the king. This is March 20th of 1778, and this is the first time, and I'm going to quote, he was announced as the deputy of the United Provinces of North America. Rather than the 13 colonies, it's the United Provinces of North America yeah. was the way he was announced to King Louis the Sixteenth. And there was a March precedent 20th. for that in uh, the Netherlands. The United Provinces of the Netherlands had been formed when they were a republic in the 1500s. And that raises a question. The Netherlands, those provinces are tiny by comparison. And what the founding fathers and mothers were trying to do, to take 13 colonies that stretched all the way from Maine to, to Georgia, mm -hmm. and to have a democracy of, of whatever you want to call them, a commonwealth of these uh, allied states working together, had really never been done on that scale before. So imagine, you've got Louis the Sixteenth. you have these Americans who are basically backwater, and that was a point that you made at the, the last discussion, Ed, which was about how Franklin uh, sort of had a homegrown personality. You know, he was mm -hmm. not ostentatious. Uh, what what mm -hmm. kind of a hat did he wear? You mentioned it last week. Coonskin hat. Yeah, he wore a coonskin hat. Now, a lot of the French aristocracy would all shave their head and they would wear wigs. And I've recently learned what's the reason why they would shave their head. And think about think about sanitation lice. and public health. Head lice. <laughs> So that was the reason that they would powder themselves and shave their head, because lice was such an issue back then. But Franklin didn't do it. He's losing his head anywhere, He's losing his hair anyway. He's 70 years old. So uh, he addresses, first the king speaks to you. So Louis addresses Franklin, and this is what Louis says. Please assure Congress of my friendship. I hope this will be for the good of both countries. So you're Franklin. The king, Louis XVI, the most powerful monarch in all of Europe, uh, said to you, please assure Congress of my friendship. I hope this will be for the good of both countries, because you know, both countries are taking big risks. What do you think, and you're not going to know the exact answer, but speculate with me, what do you think Franklin is going to say when the king says to him, please assure Congress of my friendship, and I hope this will be, the good, be for the good of both countries? What do you think Franklin says? Will do. Will do, exactly. So he does it in a, a more stretched out uh, manner. But he says, Your Majesty, you can count on the gratitude of Congress and on her commitment to the engagements into which she enters, which is a perfect answer because he's saying, the king is saying, please assure Congress of my friendship. And he responds on behalf of Congress, uh, you can count on the gratitude of Congress and her commitment to the engagement to the, con the contracts, the treaties that have been just signed. Mm -hmm. And if, he goes on to say, if all monarchies are governed by the principles which are in your heart, sir and sire, republics would never be formed. So I want to tease that out a little right. bit with you. So I mentioned how France and Louis the Sixteenth is an absolute monarch, mm -hmm. unlike England. So Ed and Manny, do you want to talk about it? how is France different than England in the 1780s, well, there, the way there, their system works? There was no parliament. There was no parliament that the king had to call. In fact, when he finally calls the semi-equivalent of parliament in 1789, it hadn't been called for o over 100 years. I forgot how long it was. So there was no check and balance on the power of the executive, whereas the English had had a civil war in the 1640s, and uh, the king got his head chopped off, which is a good check on royal power. And so after that, and especially after the glorious revolution in 1689, when the king... Uh, James II, I think this time, was chased out by uh, the lords of, the, uh, of England, it became the king and parliament. So the king was checked by whoever had the majority in parliament. And over the 1700s, the British parliament developed a system of the prime minister and different parties, the Tories and the Whigs, and it really created the foundation for what uh, we Americans then copied uh, in, in, after the revolution. So you basically asked the wrong person. What? 
he asked me that question. I could oh, have I never. You wanted me to answer. I I could have never done it more articulately than you and accurately. <laughs> I would have ended okay, it in one sentence. But France was a, like a one man. The, the executive branch governed everything. And Absolutely, that, that was not good. I Absolutely, thank you. I thank right. I thank you very much for that for that answer. That was pretty good. That was pretty good, Eric. All right. The, under Louis the Fourteenth, France became an absolute monarchy. There were very little, in fact, no checks and balances he said on the, the absolute the, monarch. The state is and me. Unlike Britain, where you did have a parliament who would stand up to the king and had a precedent and a history of standing up to the king. So when Benjamin Franklin is meeting with Louis, you got to be careful what you say because uh, he controls all the power. And there are also religious differences, by the way, between the countries. So England is a Protestant country. King Henry VIII broke away from the Anglican Church, uh, broke away from the Catholic Church. And uh, you know, France has good relations with the Pope and with the Roman Catholic Church. Well, so there are big differences. And the irony is that <clears throat> Paris and France. Uh, may not have behaved in their popular culture uh, very religiously. When you read about what would go on in some of these salons, and yeah. uh, they weren't yeah. they weren't usually following in some cases biblical admonitions, well, uh, which some of well, that may have led to the French Revolution. Well, the real problem for French civilization is that in 1685, Louis the Fourteenth, the absolute monarch, abrogated the Edict of Nantes, which was uh, a, a deal that had been cut during the French religious wars between Catholics and Protestants, permitting uh, tolerating practice by the Protestants. So after that edict of not was revoked by Louis the Fourteenth, Protestants didn't have any protection. So there was only the, the the Catholic Church had a monopoly on the practice of Christianity in France. And you know what happens with government enforced monopolies? They tend to not provide good service and uh, they oppress the minority. So a lot of very bright, bourgeois, business-minded uh, Protestants emigrated. They went to England. They were Huguenots. They went to the Netherlands. They even went to South Africa. They went to New York. The city of New Rochelle was founded by French Huguenots fleeing persecution by the Catholic authorities. And whenever I can mention Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton's mother right. and her family were French Protestants or Huguenots who, who left France because of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. That was 1598, if I'm not mistaken. It was and issued, Louis XIV, yeah. who was the grandfather of Louis XVI, he, as an absolute monarch, wanted complete control, and he resented heretics or those who didn't follow the Church, who didn't follow his religion, which is why uh, you know, he, he was suppressing uh, religious minorities. Like the Protestants. Like the Protestants. Yeah. All right, so what, what's going on when we've got Adams, you've got the Franklin are meeting with the king. This is very important because this is going to be the ally that we can win the war with, and eventually did. Uh, but imagine the scene where you've got uh, the elegant mansions and you, the, the the hall of mirrors, etc. So uh, all the French aristocracy is dressed in their elegant silk and satin fashions, wearing their elaborate and elegant wigs on their bald heads, which, as we said, were shaved uh, because people had lice. So uh, you have <laughs> King Louis the Sixteenth and his queen Marie Antoinette preside over you know this world of luxury, and you have the American delegation comes in to meet them. So. Some of the historians have commented that uh, you know Franklin, in a way, was the perfect American to have to, to lead and to be the, the face of America, because what the French could have considered the Americans to be was a threat, a threat, because you know we're resisting the King of England, and you know we can talk about some of the ironies here. But uh, if once you put a you know a, a, let's call it a, a chick in the armor, or what's the expression? A chink, chink, in the chink, chink in the armor. Chink. 
once you start pulling on the threads, if an absolute monarch is allying with these Republicans, these Democrats, you know, who are trying to create a uh, Republican form of government where it's the people who are in control, that can be very dangerous. But uh, Franklin was not intimidating. He had a humble style that included his clothing, as we talked about. He had an amazing intellect. He was embraced by the aristocracy. And I'm going to give you a quote here, uh, according to one of the biographers, that Franklin was temperamentally suited for France. The streak of irreverence that ran through him made a sense of humor. He was always downputting. Uh, you know, he's not trying to portray himself as important. He's trying to be the man of the people. So his irreverence that ran through him his entire life had a congenial reception in Paris, as did his love for laughter and his desire to amuse. And one of the scholars that focuses on Benjamin Franklin, Leo LeMay, has called Franklin, quote, the most essential and successful American diplomat of all time. And he was able to convince Louis, with the assistance of the Battle of Saratoga, uh, to provide us not just military aid, but uh, French forces, French ships, and we talked about the Battle of Yorktown, which yeah. probably had more French fighting at Yorktown than it had Americans fighting at Yorktown. Well, not only, I think the, at Yorktown, one of the key battles was uh, offshore. Um, it was the Battle of Chesapeake Bay, where the French it's called Spanish, It's called the Battle of the Chesapeake. The Chesapeake, and the, where the French squadron, led by Admiral de Grasse, came up from Cuba and chased away the British. With now, slaves and, and Cubans. Okay. And on, so the, on board, about 1,800 of them. I was talking to a, a, a military veteran uh, last month, and he said that... 38, from, 38 French ships versus 55 British ships. Well, but he said that from 1714, when the War of Austrian, uh, of the Spanish Succession, when, when Britain got uh, Gibraltar, to 1815, the end of the Napoleonic Wars... The British Navy consistently defeated and pummeled the French and Spanish navies generally. The only Much larger battle, ships. The, well, and there was a lot of money. I mean, the, having the Bank of England helped them to finance a lot of ships and more, a, a bigger ship. But he says the only battle that the French-Spanish won against the British was the Battle of the Chesapeake. Yeah. Well, they, <laughs> apparently they pinned them down. And they disguised... Well, the, the French ships were riding low because of all the silver, and so the British shot over them, and the French were more effective in their cannonade. Did you, did you steal that from I my book? I stole that from you. I didn't from, steal it. I borrowed it. They borrowed I'll it from credit. the book called The Fiscals. I give you credit. So, well, all right. But that's amazing that the, in 100 years, the one battle that the French-Spanish Navy won, you know, including losses like Trafalgar, uh, was at on behalf of America. <laughs> Which changed the course of world history because yep. that was a de decisive battle that made America great again. Because, well, made it great to begin with. <laughs> yes. Yeah, made it great, period. Because yep. imagine uh, America would have been half its size. It well, would be more... Cornwallis would have been evacuated and the British would have stayed in North America. And uh, all the way down, to, all the way down yeah, to Yorktown. They Charleston. They held Charleston. Or he wouldn't have been evacuated. He could have been reinforced. Yeah, so meaning Canada on, would be larger than the United States. Yeah, he could have <laughs> turned on uh, Rochambeau, the French general at Georgetown, and, and Washington. Yep. Okay, Adam, cont continue. I completely agree. And one of my favorite songs from the musical, the Hamilton musical, is uh, The World Turned Upside Down. Yep. This is the Battle of Yorktown. The British did not expect that they would be surrendering to the Americans, and it was the Americans <laughs> and the French. And you're right, because of the French fleet and that victory that bottled up Cornwallis, he couldn't escape by water, and we were able to take advantage of that. And, um, and who, who leads one of the charges on Redoubt 10? Right. This is siege warfare where you're building encampments. Uh, Hamilton himself. Right. And they and they, they did it at night, and they, they did not take any firearms. It was just cutlasses. 
swords, yeah. swords, and and scaling ladders, and they just you know the French took one and the Americans took the other, and Hamilton led the charge. That's right, with bayonets, and they're purposely not uh, trying to use a surprise, surprise, not the, not yep. shooting when they make that assault on the British. So. What else can I tell you about the news? So that's a huge battle. This is the battle of Saratoga allows Franklin to convince the French to support the war, which they were supporting anyway, but now officially support the war. I also wanted to point out that it wasn't just the French Navy that was involved. The French were able to bring in more ships because the Spanish, and we may have talked about before how the Spain and France were related, the kings of France and Spain were related. They were bourbons. And uh, because of that relationship, the, the Spanish were willing to protect the French colonies and the French islands so that way more French ships could go assist. So that's another reason why you know, they were very fortunate. So that news of the Battle of Saratoga uh, reaches Washington, and this is Valley Forge. So this is, we're going back in time a little bit now. So we're going back to 1778. It is the winter, which is a horrible winter. We all know Valley Forge. The weather was bad, and, and a lot of Americans were dying of cold, and they were undersupplied. So on May 1st, Washington at Valley Forge receives word, just a little bit later, of the good news from Paris. The harsh winter uh, was now a bad memory. He assembles the entire army at Valley Forge. So the winter's over, but they're still at Valley Forge for a celebration. The ceremony included Washington's request that upon the signal given, the whole army will huzzah, long live the King of France. So once it's decided, this is February 6th of 1778, when that treaty was signed, King Louis XVI approves uh, that treaty of alliance with France. When Washington learns that uh, the French are now going to be uh, joining us in the war, you can imagine that, that Washington calls for all the troops to line up. They're going to do a celebration, and upon a signal given, the whole army yells, long live the King of France. Imagine that scene. Wow. <laughs> that is the... It's the it's uh, the famous, uh, what, six degrees of separation, and yep. just one thing goes one way or the other, and the whole course of history changes. Incredible. Well, there is you. a famous porcelain statue. Um, I don't know how big it is, but apparently you can sit it on your desk, and this is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, if I'm not mistaken. I've seen a stamp of it, and I'm going to be putting pictures of it with some of the additional information to post on statutesandstories.com. But it's a picture of Franklin dressed with his, I think, wearing his coonskin hat, you know, in more simple garb, meeting with Louis XVI on that date that I told you about, when March 28th of 1778. So feel free to check that out. It's, it's a very famous, um, you know, porcelain uh, figurine. Uh, showing Louis and showing Franklin, who were you know, the two most famous people in France, the king and the most famous American. Mm-hmm. So well, what does Franklin decide to do after they make these two treaties? One is the Treaty of Alliance, and one is the Treaty of Amity and Commerce. He decides to translate and provide for publication to deliver to, to the French king and ministers the 13, what's called, founding documents for the... Uh, for the um, for the, for the colonies. So let me just see if I have this correctly. He presents to them in French the, the constitutions of the 13 states, the founding documents. And this is the first time that the seal of the United States was printed. And remember that Franklin has a background as a printer. So my understanding is that the first time that the seal of the United States is, uh, is printed, other than in a newspaper, but in book form, uh, you know, it's, it's given to the King of King Louis XVI. And here the irony is that uh, 1789 is when the French Revolution is going to start. So, you know, 
the irony is that the French who supported us, um, you've got to be careful with revolutions because uh, revolutions have a way of uh, not working the well, way you think they well, would. Well, so, well, Franklin, we talked about Adams, but I yeah. want to give you some more examples of other treaties that have been reached but, and why France and Paris was so important. So, but you know, yeah. Adam, one one thing you were saying about the, the, uh, the revolutions and once you set them off, it was the debt incurred by the French state to help the Americans was part of the problem and the reason why the king later had to call in the Estates General. So we kind of, by helping us in our revolution, the king in France put himself in a bad financial position, which led to him having to call in the Estates General, and that set off the revolution in France. Okay, when you call... So no good uh, deed goes unpunished. Okay, but when you say... Call, calling in the the estates general to raise taxes. In other words, the the one percent. No, no, the the, <laughs> the the state general was the clergy, the the aristocracy, and the people. The one percent. No, but they wanted he wanted to raise taxes, and he needed their consent because he had run out of his own finances. See, that's what the advantage that Britain had having a, a sitting parliament that would tax people all the time, and also they had a, a Bank of England that was able to issue finances. Like, that's why uh, Hamilton wanted the federal uh, government to have a, a stable currency based on gold or silver. And uh, he wanted the Bank of the United States so that there would be a, a stable credit for the U.S. government and for the U.S. economy. Well, that is a beautiful segue to understand the importance <laughs> of the Spanish silver dollar oh, yes, absolutely. in funding and the I Battle of Yorktown. I heard that from some guy in Key Biscayne, yes. Ocho reales de España. That's right. That is true. And if the Bank of England was as powerful as you're implying, then it's also very powerful at counterfeiting colonial dollars, specie currency. And you can see how uh, soldiers not wanting to no, they, they be, want paid. be paid in silver and from so, uh, Mexico, yes. Uh, yeah, uh, minted in Mexico, yep. Spanish silver dollar. And that's why you see the dollar sign it has direct associations with the tail yeah. of the Ocho Reales Follow coin. The Follow the money. Adam, did you ever, did you ever uh, I think I sent it to you by text, uh, the actual Ocho Reales coin. You can see the, the two columns with the silk reefs. That's where they get the S for the dollar sign? The dollar from? sign, yeah, that's where it came from. That is, uh, I would agree, one of the most important coins in, uh, in, in the, the, the Western Hemisphere, absolutely. Right. Um, so what I'd like to do now is just give a little bit more background about, we were talking about the Founding Fathers, we are talking about uh, Franklin and Paris, so, and we had also just now talked about the Estates General. So just to give more background, so the Estates General, or the Estates General, was the legislative assembly that had not met for 150 years. Wow. And as you described, Ed and Manny, the Estates General has to be called together by Louis XVI in order to raise taxes. This is in 1789, it was in May, and that body had not met for quite some time. But that mean, I mean, if it's been 100 years, they what, they would hold elections? But no, that, they not have elections. They just, he just suspended them, 150 years. I know, but when he does he call a, them... He was a despot. He was a I understand, but if you call an assembly into mo, into act, there yeah, has to be assemblymen. You're, you're opening up a can of worms. and that's what So what, they had to quickly elect themselves to, go, to no, attend this event? No, was the clergyman, whoever was the aristocracy, and then they, maybe they elected some bourgeois people. Okay, but that happened, happened to me quickly. The three houses are the three groups. Right. And we've talked about this before. You have the 
estate. So it's called the old regime. But the, the first estate was the clergy. The second estate was the aristocracy. And unfortunately, it was a very unfair tax system. So most of the taxes were collected from everybody else, which is the third estate. Yeah. So yeah. even though the third estate was those who were making making money, they were the businessmen, the bourgeoisie, the um, you know the farmers, etc. Um, you needed a vote of two of the three estates to get anything done. And as long as the first and second estates worked together, they could run roughshod. You know, they could get what they wanted yeah. over over the backs and their famous cartoons of how the first and second estate are riding on the backs of the third estate. But uh, I, I agree with that analogy. It was, uh, be careful what you asked for. And uh, when Louis called for the meetings of the Estates General, um, you know, things, uh, you had what was called the Tenth Court Oath, and you had members of the first and second estate join the third estate, and it put Lafayette in an interesting position because he had to decide, does he want to support you know his family and uh, the, those who come from his background, or does he want to uh, experiment in this process of democracy, but um, so we, we could spend and, and have in prior prior evenings talked about uh, the French Revolution. Maybe we'll do that in more detail at another night. But I wanted to talk about Paris and treaties because I think you'll get a kick out of some of the French treaties. Sure. But uh, a lot of history professors will tell you if, if you have to answer a question on Jeopardy, maybe we could talk about what's going on, which is quite interesting on Jeopardy. But if you have to guess on the name of a treaty or a location of a treaty, what is the the best answer for a question about treaties? What's the location where you've got more treaties than anywhere else? Treaty of Paris. All right. So. Perfect. So, Witt's Treaty of Paris. So, so here you go. So, um, 1763, the Treaty of Paris that, that was about ending the seven, seven Years War. Seven Years War. The Treaty of Paris, 1783. What did that treaty do? That ended the American War. Ended the American Revolution. Yeah. I, mean, I just mentioned some other dates, and, and these most of us won't know. 1784 was the Treaty of Paris that ended the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War because the Dutch were fighting with the British. <laughs> 1784. Uh, 1814, what's that Treaty of Paris? Seven, what year? 1814. 1814, that was when Napoleon was defeated. Right, and of course we defeat Napoleon twice when I say we, the British. And then 1815, there's another Treaty of Paris. Yep. Napoleon came back and was defeated again at Waterloo on June 18th, 1815. There you go. So the first treaty with Napoleon, the Allies give good terms to France. They let France keep most of its land, and they they don't uh, extract too much out of France. But 1815, when Napoleon escapes and uh, he has to be defeated a second time at Waterloo, that's when the Allies decide to put in place basically reparations and make the French pay for yeah. the cost of that last war and require the stationing of troops in Paris, of so foreign right. troops. So that's uh, yet another yeah. treaty of Paris. Well, the Champs-Élysées was filled with Russian troops, and the, I guess the word for fast, or, or give me that in Russian, is bistro. So all the restaurants became known as bistros. I am not kidding. You can look it up. Wow. You know, a bistro is like a rest yeah. That's a Russian word. It means like, bring me that fast, or bring me that beer, or bring me I'm, that Because I'm sovereign over you right now. Right, right, right. <laughs> and that's also where the Rothschilds made their first... Well, oh, that was part of it, yeah. They made their first People big, made huge money dump. on Waterloo, yeah. Yeah, on the falsifying who won that war. Well, they announced it as French victory. Really? Everybody sold the war bonds. Rothschild buys them so all up because he knew the truth. Securities fraud. Yeah, at first fake news. Fake news, all right. And that's Rothschild walked in with this uh, giant hat into the into the uh, London Exchange, and everybody saying, wait a minute, we just got our butt kicked. Why is this guy so happy? We just, everybody sold bonds to him. Cheap. And guess what? The news gets out that I Waterloo was out. was a, a defeat for the French, and he's sitting on all the oh, bonds. Yeah. 
and the bonds went up in value, and everybody had to buy them from him. I don't think he. I don't think he lied. I think he just had faster news. Uh huh. He had inside information. He had a quick messenger. I guarantee you, so when I he was convincing think... someone to sell him bonds, he was tooting the horn that, "Hey, we lost. Hey, uh, we lost." Okay. All right. Maybe. You want that thing that's worth a buck? I'll give you fifty shekels for it. All right. Come on, man. You're trying to get people. To... All right. Go ahead, Adam. So in our last couple of minutes, I'm just going to give you more dates and you try to tell me these are all treaties of Paris or resolutions or other kinds of French agreements that were based out of Paris. Uh, some are going to be harder than others, and Manny, I know some of these you're going to be able to get. So this No, no, not me. It's on fire today. I know. I promise you you're going to get at least one of them. So 1856. Uh, so anyone want to take a guess what treaty of Paris is 1856? Uh, Prussia versus Austria. So the Crimean War. No, Crimea, I'm wrong. Right. I would have never gotten that. So, Manny, this is one that you're going to be able to figure out. Come on. That, that was a hard one. I would have never figured that one. No, that was the Charge of the Light Brigade. See? <laughs> you're blowing me away with that. You didn't know? And it was in the 1850s, 54, the, the uh, British and the French ganged up against the Russians on behalf of the Turks. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was just, you know, European politics. you got to be careful. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Give me one. 1898, what important... American War. 1898. Oh, Spanish-American yeah, War. There you go. There you go. That, that was a layup. They settled that in, in Paris? Damn. The treaty that resolved the Spanish-American War was, uh, like all these other treaties, was a treaty of Paris. Wow. And what, what territory was taken from Spain as a result? Yeah, of Cuba. American Puerto Rico. No, Cuba, Cuba and Puerto Rico. Cuba was not taken. Cuba was an independent country. Became an independent country. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So we didn't take it. Correct, correct. Philippines became a U.S. territory. We just got 43 acres. And Guam. Okay, that's right. Uh, Yeah, and the Philippines. Cuba is an independent country. So we got Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Yes, and then we got the Guantanamo Bay. 43 square miles. That's a huge. I didn't realize it was that big of a. Yeah, man, larger than Dade County. Okay, continue. That was a treaty of Paris in 1898. I'm going to give you a date, and you tell me, it's a two-part question. Tell me the name of the treaty, and tell me what war it is. 1919. Name of the treaty, and what war? Oh, Treaty of Versailles, World War One. Eddie, do you agree? Uh, no. 1919, Treaty of Versailles? Uh... Yeah, it was a, the peace, the peace conference was at Versailles, and it was the end of World War One. although they didn't That's know where, it was That World was Prussia... It was Germany against Britain and France. Which was Prussia at the time. No, it was Germany. They had taken over all of Germany by then. And right, I'm going to skip ahead about 60 years, 1973. So it wasn't called the Treaty of Paris, but oh. it's a... U.S.-Vietnam. Peace Accords. U.S.-Vietnam. Yeah, Vietnam. Henry Kissinger. Vietnam. All right, so 1995, you had... It wasn't called the Treaty of Paris. These are the Dayton Agreements signed in Paris. Uh, what are the Dayton Agreements? What war? What was that for the Balkans? Bosnian War, 1995. Bosnia. Okay. And here's, I'm going to save the last one for, Pan, uh, for Mandy because you were talking about this in the prior hour. Uh, so the Paris Agreement of 2015, what was the subject of the Paris Agreement of 2015? Oh, geez. I, uh, climate I, Accord. Really? Climate or, or so, Iraq? Wasn't it? No, it was Climate Accord. Really? Yeah. Well, that's what we were talking about, so that's got to be the yeah, answer. Gonna, our, our new show. Yeah, with a new show with the Candela effect. Did you were you listening to the uh, the, uh, the young student that we was have here? A new star here. A new star named Candela. We're 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 priming her for fame because uh, we already have one Hall of Famer who's now uh, on. I don't want to advertise yeah, the other. No sta- I don't want to yeah. another another AM station. 
You know, they're AM anyways. Yeah. We're FM over here. Okay, so that's the end of our show. Adam, would you like to have a closing statement? So everybody should feel free to check out statutesandstory.com. And statutesandstories.com is the website which um, you know, uses primary sources to teach American history. And it's always a pleasure discussing fascinating American historical topics with you gentlemen. Well, thank you, Adam, thank you very, uh, very much. much. I'll see you next Monday. And, of course, uh, I will call you during the week to see And, if... by the way, we should say that next Monday we're going to have a special program in our uh, Concrete Conservatives. We're going to have two callers, each of them for about an hour. The first caller is Professor David Hyman of Georgetown Law School, who is an expert on health care economics. And he's going to give us a lecture, uh, a law school lecture uh, on, on healthcare economics. And then the second hour will be uh, Carl Denninger, who is an expert on healthcare economics because he's an entrepreneur and he had to deal with it. Uh, so we're going to have a, a great program next week. Well, how about so, them apples? See, we, we get uh, highly qualified people around here, Adam, like you. Thank you, Adam. Have a great night. Good night, everybody. Good night. That's the end of uh, Statues and Stories, and I must admit, Victorious Vidal is victorious because you you nailed us with trivia today like no other, all because of a stuff. gift of Don't Tread on Me belt buckle, yep, which I expect good. you're wearing next Monday. All right, we'll see. I don't. You know, I need another belt. I have to go to Texas to get a belt like this. You know. Yeah, real cowhide you can get in Davy though. There's fantastic. Davy? Okay. Oh, Davy's got fantastic countries. Uh, country. There's clothing a Beringer, stores. Uh, rodeo grounds here around. There's there. fantastic. There's fantastic uh, cowhide and store and saddles and you name it. Cow prod, um, leather products. Mm-hmm. Stay free, my friends. Stay tuned for Chris Ann Hall for the legal legal outlook Liberty on First University. The right. legal reason of TSA authority and also false FBI reports all the way to midnight. Because on Monday, Blink Radio at five o'clock is all about freedom, liberty, and the United States of America, the greatest country in the world. Take care. Stay free. Attention Patriots.